Experience by Design podcast. This is the podcast where we explore experience design of all kinds. I'm Adam Gamwell. And I'm Gary David. And you know, you might know, Adam, that I'm a college professor, right? I've heard rumor. Right. There's been talk on the street. And one of the things I'm often asked when I go to experience events, like customer experience events, are there programs on customer experience? Are there programs on employee experience? Can you major in these things? And it turns out it's pretty hard to major. There's programs in user experience, but there's really not that many programs in other areas of experience and especially in experience design itself. So thought it would be a really great opportunity to talk to, we think, the one program at the undergraduate level in the country where you can major in experience design and management. And that's at the Brigham Young University Marriott School of Business, where we had Matt Worden and Neil Lundberg come and talk about how they created this program, what the process was, how they engage students in, not surprisingly, experiential learning to teach them experience design, and where they see this program going in the future. Yeah, it was, it was super interesting is, is the idea that, that they kind of came up with this this process by thinking about experience design through the lens of recreation and experiential learning. And they both have worked in leisure studies, in which it's funny, you know, we had this kind of joke that we have in the, in the conversation that, you know, it takes a lot of work to do nothing in this case, or it takes a lot of work does. to do, do leisure studies, right? Um, but in fact, there's a lot that goes into it. And so what does it mean to create an experience, uh, you know, when you're working outdoors or working with the community? And so this kind of helped... Uh, Matt and Neil think through the process of what that means for a program and, of course, how new careers could come out of this. You know, So that's one of the things that we're excited about talking with Matt and Neil about is that uh, this is one of the first programs that we see in the U.S. Yeah, and this idea of making transformational experiences no matter where you are. But not every experience needs to be a transformational one. Yeah. It's really interesting to see how they do a good job trying to ground their students in the range of disciplines you might imagine, business, management, but also the social sciences to give them an understanding about perception, about meaning making, um, and about how we engage with one another in social spaces. So it's one of those great programs that's interdisciplinary in nature and really does provide students with a good foundation for design experiences, regardless of where they might find themselves professionally employed or where their career career trajectories might take them. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. person and yeah just i uh, don't know how to design that experience yeah. <laughs> i know it's a it's a new one for sure i know the, the, the new world of online experience design for for students and I, I don't even find actually the college students are one thing but my, my kids online learning experiences is just a horror show wrapped oh. in a train wreck put in a dumpster fire uh, it's it's epically horrible um and i'm sure dissertations will be written um perhaps horror movies will be made about this just how many logins and different platforms i gotta use to even oh, yeah. get to the kids my kids math which then i don't understand 
<laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm kid, not in this alone. Uh, my kids are in a Chinese immersion, like a dual immersion program. And so, which was complicated before helping their math, but now like the layers of online stuff, some ch- subjects in Chinese, which I don't speak. Um, mm. Yeah. And all the different platforms and teachers who are trying to do their best, but, and I think they've sort of calmed down, but like this overload, like this would take a kid like 16 hours a day to complete all of these things. And so we've sort of like narrowed it down to PE and shop by this point, as <laughs> right. names, like subject areas that we're specializing right. here. Uh, so anyways, very, yeah. Interesting times in that regard. Does someone in your home speak Chinese, Matt? No, just so the, the, the school that we're like in the, the district for in our neighborhood when we moved here already had a dual immersion Chinese program. So I speak German and my wife speaks Spanish. It's really effective. We're like really got all of our ducks in a row in terms of languages. But I was going to say you're putting yourself at an extreme disadvantage there by having your kids speak a language that you don't understand. I know, right? We keep telling them this. I'm like, why don't you guys like secretly plan behind our backs more? But anyways, uh, we figured any language exposure is good. And since it was here in the school that where we moved into, it's been it's been good. But yeah, so. Well, good, good for you. It's like if you had twins and they could communicate telepathically, because I know that they can do that. Right, exactly. But I understand. Yeah, it can happen. Well, we appreciate y'all coming on today um, to chat. And I, I did start recording, by the way. Um, so we got all of this gold. Perfect. This yeah, part, that's uh, good part stuff. Of, so this will definitely draw students into your program. If they, uh, <laughs> they'll hear the witty banner and go, "Wow, I got to be there." because this is just selling the program. And I don't think any other ways that the marketing committee at BYU could do. So you know, with that, I was kind of curious. I mean, are you the only program in the country that has experience design? I mean, I don't know of too many other ones, but I know that there's like user experience. But I'm talking about just experience design in the title. Are you it? There's a handful of others um, that are that are similar uh, but different too, right? And they're they're randomly located. I mean, there's a couple of uh, masters of experience design programs. There's one at the University of Colorado in Boulder that's in that's a masters of fine arts. I think Northeastern has a similar program. They do, yeah. Northeastern does masters. Yeah. And what what a masters? What's and what's the one at University of Indianapolis, Neil? What's the name of that one? I think it's experience design, but I'm I'm not ex- exactly sure what their differences are. I mean, they're, they're similar, but they're very interdisciplinary, which is quite typical. I think I'm pretty sure we might be the only program as an undergraduate uh, in a business school program. Most of them that I'm familiar with are interdisciplinary drawing on a lot of different fields, not located in a business school that I'm aware of anyway. Love to connect with some if they're out there. Yeah, Neil, so you're the chair, so I'll ask you this question. What what was the, the genesis, what was the origins of this idea of, you know what, we need an experience design and management program in the business school? How'd that come about? Well, I wish I could say it was kind of genius on our part, but as many of these things go, it's kind of a mixture of situations where we were a program that got moved into the business school And we began to realize that really what we had to offer was the provision of experiences. Our background really uh, led to 
our expertise really in, in being able to provide experiences, understanding theoretically some of the, the components of, of how to do that. And, uh, and so it, it really wasn't, uh, you know, a, a genius move on our part that the business school needed us, you know, had to have us, but I, I'd make that argument now. I think it's a fantastic compliment to every business and that business students need this kind of education. Uh, and I think that it's something that needs to grow and develop in business schools across the country. But, uh, you know, we, we kind of happened into it and we made the most of it. And so it's been a great experience for us. I don't know if Matt, you want to add to that, but that's my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty, there's sort of a, a perfect storm of a couple of different things going on. I think, um, you know, you have Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore write their book, Experience Economy, in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, a variety of other folks sort of, um, you know, riffing off of that and, and looking at how this impacts, whether that's experiential marketing or, you know, rise of customer and employee experience. And as Neil was saying, you know, looking at our backgrounds in terms of our faculty and, and, and recognizing this is really an interdisciplinary space, right? To understand experiences. There are, you know, logistics and supply chain issues, but there's also human psychology and sociology and, and understanding how people process and think about experiences. Um, it's not just a domain that one discipline has, um, you know, all the answers for. And so as we, as we started doing this and putting together the curriculum and, and thinking about um, also where students would go. I mean, obviously there are industries that, that explicitly provide experiences. Um, but as we've seen more and more that, that brands are also thinking about the experiences they provide, regardless if they're, you know, are, are in the service or, or consumer products or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, I've, I've been uh, interested to look at uh, how brands respond uh, in our current situation with COVID-19 right. and, and thinking about um, the experiences that they provide. Uh, there's an article um, on McDonald's and the, the changes that they're making in-house that uh, Joe Pine calls it safety theater is his term he's using to talk mm. about how you, one of the jobs to be done by all companies now is to make people feel safe. And right. uh, how you go about doing that from an experience perspective, I think is really an interesting um an interesting problem to tackle. So anyway, I sort of went off tangent there, but I think there was just a variety of things going on that, that allowed us space to, to create and continue to build out a program to meet um, uh, industry demands and bring together some disciplines to uh, do some problem solving and innovation around experiences and, and hopefully some value added ways. Hmm. Well, that, that's, that's really interesting. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering about the, the idea that, uh, so as an anthropologist, you know, I would I would kind of originally came to the the questions of experience from from like the field of phenomenology and how we sort of you know perceptually feel and experience something kind of as ourselves, our somatic selves, right? And um, so I really appreciate the idea that this is kind of a interdisciplinary framework. And so totally. I wonder, uh, I'd love to kind of like break down a little bit of of you know, and I recognize this is based partially on the faculty expertise, but you know, how do you go about thinking about what domain should we include when we're thinking about teaching experience design as an interdisciplinary program. Um, Cause you mentioned human psych supply chains, which are really cool. Like two things that feel very different, right? It's like, Oh, I got to yeah. do supply chain management or 
what's happening in my brain about my community, right? So, um, yeah. What if you're going to think a little bit about that? Yeah. You want to take a first shot, Neil? Well, within our program, we basically look at three kind of key component areas. Uh, we have a, a design methodology, so we rely heavily on a design thinking foundation. And that really informs uh, the method by which we pursue a lot of this. Uh, of course, in the business school, we have a management component as well. Students get a, a heavy dose of management through their business education. And then we bring in a lot of uh, diversity from there, but we we focus on, uh, as of late, uh, positive psychology and the way in which uh, thriving and well-being and positive emotion are key components of, of providing good experiences. So there's probably lots of other elements that can be added, but those are kind of recognizing that we don't have the bandwidth or the ability to cover everything that's probably important. Those are kind of three uh, pillars or, you know, stool uh, legs of a stool that we, we kind of uh, base ourselves on. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a, I think that's a good description. And I think it's also important to say experience design is emerging field. And, and we would say experience design and management, because we see sort of the design mm -hmm. is that front end gaining empathy, going through a process to, you know, create something and deliver something. And then the management would be the back end of, of not only the delivery, but continuous improvement and the processes that are needed to do that. And that's sort of a, the cyclical process of designing and managing and redesigning. Um, but I think to, um, to Neil's, to Neil's point, uh, you know, experience design means a lot of different things to different people. Uh, for us, we use it as an umbrella term, uh, you know, broadly thinking, designing experiences, and then those methodologies are going to be applied in uh, different ways in different contexts, right? So we're not a user experience program, for example, right? Right. Um, right. Though we feel like we there's some similar things that we talk about in concepts, right? Uh, we're not a service experience design program. Um, uh, but what we want to do is provide students as an undergraduate program exposure to principles, content theory, around experience design that can then be generalized in these different spaces. And so for a student to say, yeah, like I'm interested in this particular sector, um, you know, we have electives that address some of those, um, uh, but, and also try to work with students. And this is what a big project we're working on this summer is identifying these different trail guides for different careers, right? If you want sure. to take experience design and management skills and go into hospitality, it would look like this. If you want to go into customer experience, it would look like this. If you want to go into patient experience or product right. management and sort of building out those spaces, because we feel like there's a lot of opportunities in industry where organizations are saying, ah, I need somebody who does this, right? It's not quite operations. It's not quite supply chain. There's a human element to it. And, and, and we feel we have, we have students and are trying to develop a program to, to meet those needs. And, and, and I think that's an interesting space to be, because this is not a, um, uh, yeah, set in stone curriculum, right. As we continue to talk with professionals and say like, Oh, we need a little bit more behavioral economics, right. There's some great stuff there. Um, I think, you know, Neil teaches a, a 
a class that's very much more on the sort of ethnography side and you know how do you understand people's needs and 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 get reliable data um so i think we're we're continually on the lookout for tweaking within those buckets of design management and, and psychology writ, writ large or social science really hmm. it's kind of interesting to me in terms of being in an academic institution, this is not an, uh, I'm not speaking about BYU, I'm speaking in general. It's a, it's a boundary environment in which you're trying to be an open program. You know what I mean? So it's like, yes, we do all of these different things, but so much of higher ed is these are our boundaries. This is our lane. This is how we defined ourselves. We do this as by virtue of us doing this, you don't do it. Mm-hmm. And so you can get what is a real big problem in higher ed right now are these silos in which trying to create cross-disciplinary work, even though that's foundational to the world we live in today, is not easy to accomplish and can put a department at a deficit. If you do all things, if you're all things to all people, you're potentially nothing to anybody. Totally. And so how do yep. you manage that as a program to be like, well, we're really inclusive and we encompass all these things, which is very porous, which I would agree with, but at the same time, in an organizational environment, that can be a challenge in terms of staking ground and resources and advocating for yourselves in terms of what it is you are, who it is you are, what it is you do. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a regular challenge on our part, and and uh, you know, in transparency, that's kind of the the tension that we feel amongst our faculty. And as we think about uh, how can we really maximize our potential, where is it that we're best suited to provide uh, curriculum and then potential outcomes for our students. And so it's a constant tension and challenge. I don't know that we have a great answer for it other than, you know, Matt brought up this project that uh, he's spearheading this summer in, in identifying kind of career mapping. And, and we've kind of said, oh, well, maybe we could do this for, you know, X large number of uh, career angles. But in truth, we've started to try and narrow it down to where we're at right now with eight. Now that sounds like a lot, but that's still from our perspective where we have a a pretty diverse opportunity for students, eight is actually a pretty usable number. So it's an ongoing challenge for sure. I think it reflects this. I'm sorry, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was just going to say, and you know, there's complexities in terms of the various stakeholders that you're connected to as an academic, right? You've got students and parents You've got your college, you've got employers looking to hire people. And so I think we're always looking, how do we bring value added to students that will translate over into the marketplace? How do we bring value added to the college and not duplicate things that are already being done? Um, And so, yeah, it is, I think it is tricky. And, uh, you know, we do our best to navigate that and and try to look at opportunities. uh, I think especially in the marketplace where we feel our students can bring um, a unique set of skills as 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 graduates, and then and get careers in those areas. Um, right. And if and if we can consistently do that, um, and we're not you know scraping jobs away from other you know programs in the business school, but we're finding new space to place students, uh, which we think we're doing, then uh, that's sort of the path we're trying to proceed down. And then look for uh, um, you know opportunities to. Um, collaborate. So we're part of a design thinking minor on campus that's us and a couple of other 
um, programs to just allow students to look at what does design thinking look like in the school of technology or um, over in education or wherever it might be and looking at, uh, you know, other collaborations. But I, but I think, yeah, we always talk about interdisciplinary, but there's that silo piece that's just ingrained in, in, in higher ed. I was, and I would also say in organizations, one of the things I often ask people when I'm talking about maybe doing some consulting work or just chatting with them about their customer experience program, for instance, in their company, the first question I ask is, well, where does it live? You know, yep. what is it under? Because that's going to tell me a lot about the nature of the program. And I think those forward thinking companies like BYU being a forward thinking institution, it lives in its own right. You know, I, I, just, I was just thinking that if you had a patient experience program that was part of a medical school, it's probably going to be reduced to the clinical encounter and it's not mm-hmm. going to include the parking lot attendant, right? right? Even though that parking lot attendant might be the most critical piece in that patient journey, they're not yeah. going to think about it because it's in the medical school versus if it was its thing in its own right, apart from those kinds of silo thinking, you would have a much better opportunity to take in the whole patient journey or customer journey or employee journey or things like that. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. So back to, you know, what Neil was saying about this, you know, uh, career trail guide project we're working on. Uh, we know there's, there's industries that get experiences and we, we can place students um, pretty easily in what we would, you know, term experience industries. Right. And then there's others where it's emerging and you don't always know where the patient experience right. or the customer experience or the employee experience you know, space is going to be located with an organization. And, and I think that's an interesting balancing act for us to look at here are paths we know we can place students and here's paths we, we think we can. And we're showing some early returns, but how do we continue to build out those areas, uh, whether it be like patient experience, which we were talking about, which I know Neil has, you know, been doing some work on and, and having conversations with, you know, chief experience officers inside sort of the medical space. Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. And I, and I think, I mean, I, in my mind, um, so much is up for redesign right now in our current situation that, you know, I've been telling this to students for the last couple of months is that we're going to, we're entering into a phase where, um, business as usual no longer exists. And there's going to be a ton of opportunities for people who can come in and think creatively about, how to make experiences better, whether that's like Joe Pine's safety theater and uh, what that looks like to take safety as a concern off people's mind and let them come to McDonald's or wherever it might be and just be like, I feel safe here. I love this brand, not because they've, you know, their fries are good, uh, but because I can walk in here and I have no concerns about whether or not this is a safe space, which is just not something we were thinking about six months ago. Right. And I think that I appreciate this idea too of of kind of thinking about where are the opportunity spaces in you know since we are in this time of of redesign both because you know we are in the age of COVID and that like we've had to reconfigure a lot of our social systems and and uh, medical systems and everything else and you know on on one level the idea of experience design and thinking about this from a user experience perspective. Um, to some companies, is a luxury that you add on to a product later, right? And it's like we hope you enjoy mm-hmm. it, but really the point is to make the product, you know. Um, and then there's other sort of experience-focused organizations that are like, well, how you feel and experience what's going on is is the thing that matters in the first place, right? And that to the extent that that can be the the product itself or the service. And so, um, you know, this this reflection of uh, I, you know, I 
both Gary and I do consulting with with businesses, and um, you know, one of the interesting pieces that that I've run into a few times is that you know, with organizations that are trying to understand what their identity is, you know, like and even if they even if they have a product offering, whether it is a you know piece of software or a consulting service or something, um, you know, there's always this idea about what it is that we offer and what we're bringing to the table. And uh, you know, I was in a meeting recently that was interesting, where there, there, this this organization was trying to think through. We have software that we offer that that helps a, a you know deliver a solution um, for employees at, at a company, but you know we don't really compete in the tech space. We're not a tech company. You know, we're not trying to be the next Google or the next um, you know cool looking Apple device because we'd never win that game because there are Google and Apple. We're, we're a small company, right? However, what we do do well is about shaping these experiences, right? So it's kind of like they they were thinking about what's competition, what's our space, what what are we working in? We're trying to rethink even or redesign who we are, especially in this time. They're doing this right now during COVID. Uh, it, it comes down to like, we have something you can see, which might be software, but really this is actually about the experience, right? This is about the kind of service and engagement that we can bring to to um, you know our clients, in essence. And so I think that's a really interesting way to kind of approach experience as a both you know, department and group to teach, but then also the idea of these these sort of trail guides. I think it's a really wonderful metaphor uh, in terms of how do we like give trajectories of what experience can help us do in terms of find businesses or help students, you know, find work or meaningful work and, and gainful employment after school. Um, and then, you know, but have this flexibility that when they may find a position, right, they even realize in that if they're working in management or in design or psychology or something, uh, behavioral economics, that there actually is space Again, still like experiences this kind of locus or this core in which they can like approach all these different kinds of questions. So they're not basically stuck in the quote tech sector. Not that that's a bad place to be necessarily, but um, they're never quite stuck in hospitality or tech or customer experience and they can kind of hop right. around. And um, I don't know. Yeah. So, so I, think, I just want to say that like it seems like a nice way to approach it that experience has this kind of flexibility that. Um, I don't. I, I just don't see that is 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 in in other kinds of again dis- disciplinary approaches, right? And so um, there is something really interesting yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, I like how you frame that, and I think there's there's pros and cons with that, right? You know, back to our previous conversations, but I do think it provides students um, some elbow room to think about not only their first job, but hopefully we're we're helping them develop a mindset and the methodology to just make experiences better wherever they go. And I think we often talk to our students that, you know, wherever you end up, we want you to be entrepreneurs, right? You want, we want mm-hmm. you to be thinking about how do you make um, your space inside this organization better using sort of your, your, your mindset and the skills that you bring to the table. And we've seen this too. I mean, uh, Neil, you can maybe talk to this later, but we had somebody come speak on campus. It's been a, two years ago. Who's in the, in very much the patient experience space, but, where did where did that speaker start? Was it he was it he with like the Atlanta Braves or something? And then he had been with, um, uh, you know, he had hopped from like commercial real estate to sports, and now is right. in 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 with a with a medical consulting firm. Wasn't that sort of the yeah. trajectory there, Neil? Yeah, I don't remember the specifics, but I think it's it's true in that in that the applicability is pretty high in these various different context. And, and that's one of the things some people like, some people don't like, but we talk about uh, context neutral applications or principles that, you know, you can use these pretty much anywhere because understanding the journey of a participant, a guest, an end user, this is really 
I mean, it's something we all need to do. And if we can enhance that through experiences, then then we've got a skill set that can be used almost anywhere. Hmm. Right. And so I think we can preach that message, but then we have to give concrete examples of pathways that students can walk uh, to get into places and and also recognizing it, you know, an undergraduate degree is is just that right. It's going to get you into sort of a um, entry level spaces um, or tra- you know a trajectory into a graduate program or things like that. So sort of balancing what what is what is the digestible content at this level with the number of credit hours that we have available to us, um, so we can get some competency um, down, but not try to uh, you know do our, you know, paint our brush strokes too broadly or spread the butter too thin across the toast, so to speak. I've not heard that metaphor before of the butter being spread too thin across the toast, but I'm going to use it. I think Bilbo Baggins said that in Lord of the Rings. That is, I was was going to cite my reference. This is inside stuff. Inside baseball. I I am not familiar with at all. Neil, did you get that? Or are we both, are we both out of this conversation? Sorry, I, I my my internet cut out. I missed a question. Oh, oh you missed the question about the the, the bread and spread on oh. toast. No, no, I I did not recognize that reference, so I feel like a loser. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I just thought, hey, who wants not enough butter on your toast? That's a bad thing, right? It's yeah, a legit I, question. I, I yeah, exactly. I thought it was a good thing. <laughs> so, so Matt, I I I am reading through your book right now, design experiences. I, mm-hmm. I did plan on being further ahead in it, but my, um, my dog developed ringworm oh, and no. that interrupted my progress yesterday because then I had to, I had um, a bunch of students say the same thing when they were reading my book last mm-hmm. semester. Like did, common, my dog didn't eat my, your book because it's an my e-book. Book. Yeah. <laughs> my dog got ringworm, which prevented me from completing your book for today. Hopefully there's, there's not causation there. No, I don't think there is, but there's no worms in ringworm. I did not know yeah. that. So if anybody listening, it's not, there's actually not worms. It's just okay. like a, a skin infection. Just a fungus. Yeah. They get better. But, yeah. but I will, I will tell you this, your book, your book did cause some controversy with me and Adam, because I told Adam, the title of the book was design experiences. And Adam said, well, what comes after the colon? And I said, I don't know. And then I looked it up and I said, there is, there is no colon. He's like, what do you mean there's no colon? I said, it's, the book is just design experiences. So can you explain that a little bit for us? Because we're not quite yeah, sure what happened there. Well, yeah, that was a conversation. <laughs> I, I remember when we were having the conversation with the with uh, Columbia Business School Press that we're like, okay, there should be a colon. I mean, like academic things, there's always a colon. And always like, a colon. Yeah. yeah like I, I, <laughs> I, And I have really boring titles for all of my articles. So at some point, as Bob and I went back with the publisher, we just said, you know, we, we were hoping – that people across different industries can can read this. So even plugging on like a customer experience or employee experience or whatever, like some type of modifier, we just wanted to leave it at that. Because I, I think our impetus for writing the book was there's a, a lot of good content already out there about why experiences are important or the experience economy or people want to buy experiences more than stuff, right? There's a couple of you know right. threads around this topic. And we just felt that there... Um, you know, and having taught this for a while, I, I just wanted one book that I could give to students and say, here's, here's a way to get started with some, with some steps and methods to design experiences. And so I think as we had those conversations and look back to why we wrote the book and who we hope consume the book, we wanted to keep it open-ended. 
What I appreciate that. One of the things I also appreciated was the references to George Herbert Mead and Herbert Bloomer, because that took me back. I was like, "Hey, graduate school, symbolic interactionism." <laughs> so, yeah, you know. I, I, I and I did really like the fact that a lot of the books out there, like you talk about Chip and Dan Heath or some of these other books, right? They they kind of dip their toe into the academic realm a little bit, but not too much, which I understand as a mm-hmm. as a choice. But in your book, you actually kind of go more into the the social science of these experiences that create this larger framework for folks, so that it's it's you know it's like a lot of those publications you find. Uh, like I would tell students, it's it's the publications you find at the airport when we used to be able to go to the airports on the business table, right? Yeah. Those books, but then it's got enough there in terms of the academic foundation where you know talking about phenomenology or talking about symbolic interactionism or talking about positive psychology or, or, um, you know, social psychology, those things are still there enough to kind of be like, yeah, there's actually a science to this. We're not just making it up as we go. There actually is stuff that we know as social scientists, which is useful to how we're trying to do this thing. Totally. Yeah. And that, and that people have been thinking about these questions for a long time. They just haven't been having a ton of conversations across disciplines and uh so yeah i mean it was a balance right like we didn't want it to be too academic-y um but i think to your point like there there's a there's a lot of smart people who have been thinking about various aspects of experiences and there's a ton of unanswered questions if we get as we get into sort of the neurological understanding of how memory works and what we remember and what we don't remember and why and all of these different pieces so uh we we try to at least have some some foundation in the science that exists around some of these, some of these issues. And yeah. Hmm. I, w- I wonder, like, uh, I, I uh, am excited to read the book. I, have, I haven't, I haven't, I'm going to steal it from Gary when he's done. And, it's uh, electronic. So I have to give you my, uh, my yeah, give me your password. That, that sounds totally safe. Yeah. So fine. Um, speaking of experiences, <laughs> right? <history> too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, one thing I am curious about is, is that, uh, you know, from reading about both of you, that you have both done um, a lot of interesting research around leisure studies, tourism studies, and and and, mm-hmm. and Neil, you've done some work with post-traumatic stress uh, injury and sort of reintegration experiences. And that I think that these are two really kind of rich domains that you know, when when you one might come to the the field of experience design, they don't often start there, right? I mean, like there's been interesting steps in the past decade from the you know doing kind of more experience research in the VA. Um, and trying to understand sort of integration experiences um, or reintegration experiences too, and um, e- even from simple things as like both trying to redesign the the technical experience of healthcare.gov and, and va.gov, you know, all the way into like what kind of psychological training and um, kind of experiential pieces might be part of that too. And so, um, so that but you both have kind of done this around. It seems like outdoor education on some level, right? Sort of like leisure and being outdoors, and like that's a really interesting idea too, because nature on one level is like the thing that's supposedly out there that we go to experience right but like this interesting concept of designing experiences around being out in nature i guess and like in both the therapeutic capacity of it and um you know in in it's interesting ways that we can interact and so um there's kind of a jumble of ideas i guess i'm, I'm kind of spinning around here but i think the idea of like like how do, how do leisure studies and, and outdoor studies and in like you know ptsd and, and military reintegration like these are three different um and really interesting spaces i think to, to kind of approach Experience. I'd just love to hear a bit about your research in, in these spaces and like how that's come to shape how you approach teaching and and your work today. Yeah, you want to go yeah, first? Yeah. 
Sure. Uh, you know, my original uh, background uh, in training is a recreational therapist, mm-hmm. and I, I love those roots and, and love the, the services that I was able to provide as a recreational therapist. And for me, it, it really gives me a foundation uh, in what it means to provide experiences. How is it that I can actually craft an experience that I believe can be transformative. And so it's not just about experience design. It's about designing experiences, multiple experiences, potentially creating a pathway that in the end is a series of experiences that are transformative. And so there's a lot of uh, principles uh, for experience design and management, but there's tons of principles out there that can be drawn from these diverse areas to inform us in how we sequence a series of events, for instance, to create a desired outcome. And so Anyway, most of my background has been around this idea of trying to orchestrate transform- transformative experiences for people. And so I think there's just so many principles that we can draw from various fields. And in my case was recreation therapy in how we structure uh, events uh, to create this particular desired outcome. So uh, I've just, I've just loved the kind of the crossover. And for me, you know, what, what, uh, I was able to create as a transformative event, uh, makes sense for somebody who's, who's trying to uh, build a meaningful event in a different context. And there's, there's elements of that, that, that can all be drawn on. So I've, I've just, found the path to be really exciting. And, and my hope now is that there's more transformative events, uh, you know, to continue working on uh, in different contexts. So it's, hmm. and, and, you know, for, for me, al- along those same lines, you know, my, my family is a, uh, comes from a commercial uh, recreation background. So my dad still operates a whitewater rafting company. So I started guiding hmm. when I was cool. in my teens and, you know, I'd see families come from all over the world on, you know, five to seven day wilderness trips. And I'd see uh, changes in how people interacted or how relationships were formed. And, and in my mind, then it was always, well, what can we do, you know, better? How can we make this experience better, you know, as a provider perspective? But it, I started thinking in the back of my head, like, what is it about this setting and this experience? Is it the challenging nature where you removed from society? Like what's going on? And, you know, as I went down an academic path and realized that there was, you know, there was really interesting theories that got it, you know, why certain types of experiences impacted people in different ways. I, I, I just um, developed this curiosity in experiences that change people. Similar, similar to what Neil was saying. So, in, in my academic career, I've bounced around from uh, looking at outdoor education spaces. I've looked at study abroad. I've looked at employee experiences. Uh, really trying to understand not so much the context, so that's that's a piece of the experience skate, right? The space where it's occurring. But what are what are the processes and principles that are generalizable across contexts? And leisure is a is a really interesting space to study because uh, be, be, 
because it's a volitional space or it can be, which can be good and bad as we're seeing in COVID times as well, right? Like suddenly you have all this time. And what does that mean? Like I learned how to play the cello and I've like, haven't stopped watching Netflix in like two months, right? There's like a lot of different varieties of what that might look like. Um, but there's the, 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 the research that's been done looking at people's leisure behavior, I think has some really interesting insights into what makes experiences desirable. And so if we can look at the types of experiences people choose to have when they have time to make choices, like how do we, what can we learn from that from other types of experiences that we're designing? There's a, there's a great um, article that was written about the relationship between work and leisure by an Australian scholar by the name of Boris Kabanoff that was like published in 1981 that I stumbled upon working on a project. And he's got a quote in there that I should memorize because I always paraphrase it poorly, but basically he said, you know, if, if we want to make work more engaging, we should probably pay attention to what we're learning about leisure and what makes leisure engaging so we can use those principles to design work. Hmm. And I think for a lot of reasons, we're seeing, um, for example, just if we take work as an example, where for a long time, post-industrial revolution, work and leisure were these very separate spheres. And there was a lot of times organizational policy that kept them that way, right? You didn't talk about home when you're at work. And when you went home, you just wanted to be separated from work. Um, but because of societal trends, technological trends, pandemic trends, suddenly that overlap is, is, is in, or that, that separation is decreasing, right? And, and we're seeing also generational trends where people say like, I want to work someplace where I can bring my full identity to work, right? Like I want, I want to be someplace that, right. um, you know, people know me for my full self and my hobbies and my interests mm. and, and that, that work can be a space where, um, yeah, I can feel autonomy, um, where I can, where I can, uh, you know, feel intrinsically motivated to do the things that I'm doing. It's not just about a paycheck and benefits. Um, there's other aspects of the employee experience that I think are becoming increasingly important. So we can gain principles and understandings from spaces like understanding, you know, what, what drives people's leisure behavior. And how can we pull those insights into other spaces as well? So that's sort of a long answer, but I think Neil and I are both sort of from this background of coming from different spaces and realizing, wow, there's there's some there's some interesting insights from disciplines that are not necessarily related to each other that we can um, we can learn from. And maybe just one quick other example that I'll sure. give to this: when we first started developing our our curriculum in this direction and thinking about experiences as sort of a landing space for multiple different disciplinary um, um, sources. We, we, we had a little retreat where we brought together, I can't remember how many, 20 or 30 people. We try to bring the professionals from different industries, from hospitality. We had somebody from the national forest service. We had people from uh, just all kinds of different business sectors. And we brought them together and, and, and basically the context was we sort of feel like you, you may feel like you're, you have nothing in common, but we would like to just spend a day talking about experiences and see what y'all can learn from each other and the type of conversations that we would have in this space. And we had hopes that it would be a fruitful conversation, but it was, it was, I think, incredibly surprising how fruitful those conversations were that you could have people from, uh, you know, in the financial sector talking to somebody from you know, hospitality or the, or the national park service, or just these like very different spaces saying like, Oh yeah, like you do this in your company. I could do this in this other right. space. And, 
So I think that was an initial, for me, that was a point where I thought, okay, this is, this is a really fruitful, practical space where people can come together and, and share ideas and, and uh, learn from one another um, in ways that they couldn't if they were just in their sort of professional silos. You were mentioning transformative experiences. One of the things I've been watching a lot about, a lot of, not on Netflix, but is uh, Naked and Afraid. I don't know if you've ever watched oh, the show. Oh, yes. Isn't that, is that the survival one? It is, and it's weird, and I, I swore <laughs> I would never watch it, but then I started watching it. And so you know, the premise is you got this this you know, woman and this man who don't know each other typically, and they get dropped off into some bounded area. I mean, it's not like completely out in the wilderness. They are in the wilderness, but there is like a medical crew nearby and the cameraman because you have a cameraman and they have no clothes on, not even shoes. Um, and then they have to like survive for 21 days. All right. Wow. So that's the premise of the show. And I can't believe I'm the only one who's, who's actually watching this show. It's a little <laughs> embarrassing, but, and the point is this, well, there's two points. Number one is they take 21 days of footage. If the person lasts that long and put it down into 45 minute show, which means that most of the time they're sitting there trying not to starve doing nothing. But the other thing is like, why would you do this? And the, people who are on it talk about when they've done like the post interviews of these folks, the transformative experiences that they've had by learning they can do this thing um, with their skills on their own with like, they're given like two items or, you know, so someone like has a machete and like, you know, maybe, you know, some, you know, a fire starter and that's all they got and they got to eat grubs or whatever the hell they do. I mean, so <laughs> and, and forage for food and try not to die. So kind of cool. No, I, no one's died yet. But it's this transformative element of this experience. And I, I do wonder to what extent that it also call, calls the viewer, talk about framing, right? The viewer to have transformative experiences based on what they're seeing on the television as well. So yeah, that, yeah, really that's my transformative experiences on recreation. There you go. Well, and, and you know, it, Joe, Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore at the end of their book talk about the next transition will be from an experience economy to a transformation economy, right? So, you know, experience economy is driven by, um, t you know, the, the moniker sort of time well spent, right? You're, right. you're spending money to, to spend your time doing things you want to do. Service economy, you're, you're uh, you know, time well saved. You're spending money to somebody else to do something so you don't have to do it. But with the transformation economy, it suddenly becomes aspirational. I'm, you know, I'm paying somebody to help me achieve an aspiration. Right. Right. And, uh, they don't talk as much about that as towards the end of the book, but I, it's a topic that I think Neil and I are, are really interested in, um, in, in terms of not only, you know, sort of our research background, but how you teach that and how you, how do you design for transformation? Well, you just described Iron Man, basically, right? I mean, I've done a couple <laughs> Ironmans, and I, I did yeah. research on ultra marathoning. Um, yeah. I used to do an ultra marathoning podcast, and most people who were doing these ultra marathons from fifty k up weren't doing it to be competitive, weren't doing it to try to try to break a record. They're doing it for the experience. Yeah, and and the, the the survey I did, and the you know the interviews I did, and I've done some ultras was all about that. It was about experiential okay. events. Uh, and, and athletics, we're seeing this shift from, because I put on a couple of bike races as well, moving from competition to experience. Yep. So I, I don't want to compete against somebody. I just want to do like a long gravel grinder. I want to do yep. a, you know, a randonnée or, or something like that, where I can just be with people and have the experience without having well, to have the worry about winning or losing. Yeah. Well, and it's so often the question that you brought up earlier about the show is, can I do this? 
is this something I can really do? Right. Uh, you know, it's the, the stretch that so often is, is uh, what's a key element of, of what becomes transformational. It's not, it's different than uh, the elements of an experience that's emotional or excuse me, that's memorable. It has these positive emotional components to it and we may remember it for a long time, but something that really changes us uh, forces us to to dig deep, and and uh, so these are these are things that are not easy to program for either. Uh, but right. that's the exciting thing about them. And the, the interesting, so I've been reading a bunch um, about how different disciplines talk about uh, transformation, right? So I've been uh, looking at uh, how the educational field talks about transformation because there's this whole space around transformational learning theory. And, uh, you know, this idea that if you teach something and that people then use that, whatever that material is outside of the context where they have to use it. So outside of the classroom and they enjoy using it um, and that it somehow makes their experience better, that that's transformational learning. Um, and I read this this article that added this other piece to it that they said, you know, a lot of the lot of the um, sort of the research around education is this very. Um, agentic, um, you know, we need to put kids in charge and they need to be able to make choices about what they're learning, which is all, which is all well and true, but it's sort of this critical thinking perspective where we're sort of analyzing content and, um, we're sort of standing back and analyzing situations and, and they made the case that, or a single author made the case that with transformation, there's also this aspect of what, what, what they call suffering, that we need mm-hmm. to suffer experiences right. to occur, right? And I love this idea because they said, you know, if you look at like flow theory, you know, there's this idea that you have certain experiences where you're just wrapped up in the moment, right? There's a total lack of awareness of time passing and you're not worried about what people are thinking about it. And they go, that doesn't happen when we're just sort of coldly, rationally talking about a, a, a topic or, or breaking something down. It's like, you know, they gave the example of their friend who can never enjoy a movie because he's always critiquing everything as opposed to right. just suffering it to mm. happen. Right. Um, right. And I think I, th- I think there's that dual meaning with the word suffer when it comes to transformational experiences um, that, that we have to uh, sort of let go and let things happen that, that might be hard. Right. That, that to, to sort of immerse ourselves in experiences. And I'm bouncing all over here, but I, I think we're also seeing this rise in sort of immersive experiences too, right? That people are, whether it's a, you know, immersive theater has become a thing in the last number of years that has become quite, quite popular. And I just, I love when people just think really creatively and upend things um, that we traditionally think of, you know, well, theater's got to be this way or movies got to be this way. Well, you know, what if we make it more, what if we make it more immersive? What if, what if we not only provide uh, competitive races, but there's ones that are more of an experience that just allow people to have sort of an individual struggle. And again, tying back to where we currently are, I just think it's fascinating what's going to happen when we emerge from this and what, you know, how we think about so many different things, uh, differently through, through new eyes. Hmm. I like that. That's a really, that's a really great set of thoughts. And you've, you, you tagged on the immersive theater thing there. Cause I, I am a huge fan of, of immersive theater. Uh, and for the, I mean, the reasons that you described that it's, it, it actually, it not only upends what we think of as a, a traditional play, but it's, it's fun. It's interesting. It's weird. And I'm thinking of like two examples I've been to in New York, uh, and in Boston are sleep no more. And another one called then she fell in sleep no more is, 
a an immersive like three hour play that takes place now in the McKittrick Hotel in Chelsea. That is uh, a kind of Victorian era rendering of Macbeth, but a murder mystery version of that. And uh, what this this play is, uh, if you haven't been to it, is um, you know all the audience members wear these kind of weird masks that you might see during you know middle Middle Ages and plague, like in these white masks, so you can tell who the audience members are because it kind of anonymizes them a little bit. And then the actors are are kind of doing the play in this you know, three story open space that like different parts of it open up during, during the experience. But for the whole time you can walk anywhere, you can interact with anybody. Um, the rule is you can't talk and you can't like overly mess with any, any of the actors, but they can come mess with you though. They can come dance with you or spin you around or give you food. Um, and you can like touch any of the objects in the rooms and each, each room is like this crazy diorama. Um, but this incredibly immersive experience that, that, um, you know, part of it was transformational for me because I didn't know what I was walking into the first time I went. We, I was going with a, a colleague of mine who um, is a reporter, and they were doing a story on this new play. You know, so we didn't we didn't know what it was, and uh, and so that like heightened the experience. Um, also, it happened to be in an abandoned high school, which made it extra creepy. Um, you know, in in outside of Boston, <laughs> but um, but this idea too of you know this it's a, a super rich and interesting experience that uh, both puts things on its head, but then is really kind of about this, this idea you said of immersion and then um, kind of co-suffering together. Um, I want to think about this too. And I, using my, my COVID time, I've been rewatching Westworld. Um, and that's also premised entirely upon, you know, HBO's version of a dystopian future world where we can have a, a kind of robot cowboy Western experience place. You can do whatever you want. And of course, HBO, that means it's full of violence and, and other unmentionables. Uh, and then the, the less crazy violent version of that in real life, which is Burning Man, um, not too far away from, from um, in the Southwest, you know, in, in, in Nevada. And, uh, you know, these three kinds of things, whether it's like theater or a television program or, or Burning Man, which is, you know, I don't know, some cultural artistic event, um, you know, all of these are premised on this question of transformation as, as part of the experience, which I think is really interesting. Um, you know, there's there's not really a sense of competition there. And like Burning Man explicitly is like both about radical acceptance and radical participation. And I think this participatory element is really quite important too of when it comes to immersion, when it comes to thinking about experience that would be transformational. Um, it, you know, it requires you to do something, right? And that's kind of what you said about suffering experiences yeah. I'm thinking about too, right? Yeah. Uh, you can't just watch them anymore, right? And so immersion is is the doing, and I and I think that that's, uh, yeah, I think I think you're right on. Like that's like a fundamental piece that we're going to see more and more of, is, you know, we desire that kind of transformation partially because we see the you know the we we now kind of get the delight of digital experiences. We understand what it's like to play with an app or a cool computer game or, or maybe even a VR. Um, but immersion and then on its way to transformation through participation, I, I think really changes the paradigm, right? Of like what it is that, that mm -hmm. we're seeking, you know, it feels like we're just going up Maslow's hierarchy, <laughs> you know, yeah, just kind of get up to, yeah, to that top part, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What it means, I have no idea, but. Well, no, that, that, like that's, that's, that's an existential question, right? What does it yeah. mean? I think it means that for, for business students, there's a lot of opportunity in that space. I mean, look at Spartan Race, look at Tough Mudder, right? I mean, yeah. the idea of a Spartan Race where, you know, the obstacle is that you want to crawl underneath those hanging electrodes, which will shock you if you hit them. All right, sign me up. I'm in, right? <laughs> or even you know, CrossFit. 
right? This, this, this yeah. group suffering, right? It's all, it's all premised around group suffering. It's what, when I, in relation to ultra marathons, it's what I would call play at suffering. Pe- mm-hmm. People's mm-hmm. lives become so comfortable that they become in some ways devoid of meaning, um, that they can get in touch with themselves or transform by engaging in this hundred mile race or 50 mile race or, you know, whatever outrageous event that exists. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, not that I know Latin, but I read the article and it talked about the um, connections between the Latin root words for suffer and passion are similar. And I think we live in a day and age when, a lot, and there, there's some great work. Emily Asfanti Smith has written a book about called the power of meaning. That's really great. And, you know, I think we, we live in an age when a lot of the sources where people look to for meaning in the past, whether that's sort of uh, community organizations or um, organized religion or national identities. Um, for a lot of people, those aren't, you know, those things have changed. And so there's this sense of like, where do I find meaning and how do I find, you know, groups that I connect with? And, and so I think there's, I think, again, this is why organizations, regardless of what they do, they can play in this meaning making space, right? If you think about, you know, if you're in HR and thinking about your employees and from a learning and development perspective, like what can I learn from Spartan races or, you know, community bowling leagues or whatever these places where people find meaning. How do how do I how do I create a space where where people feel fulfilled at work and connected to work? Like right. part of their identity is not just because I'm giving a paycheck, but this is a space where they can develop in ways that are interested to them, or that they're stretched, or that they're empowered. Um, I just think we can break down a lot of uh, silos between contexts and people's lives, and think about how those experiences can be rethought. I think it's a good job for Neil as department chair. I mean, how is Neil going to create this uh, inclusive environment in the department as department chair, right, Neil? Well, we do a lot of shared suffering, so that's. Right? That, <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's exactly. At what least I'm that's the, that's what the faculty think is that it's a lot of shared suffering. So we do yeah, like but, to mountain bike together, though. That's you do true. mountain bike together? Yeah. Cool. That's great. Yeah, I, I'm jealous of that. I mean, I, I was mountain biking before, but then I decided that uh, now would not be a good time to go to the hospital once I injured myself. <laughs> so I'm sticking to trail running because it's a little bit, a uh, little bit safer. Um, yeah. When I invariably go, you know, there's no handlebars to go over when I'm trail running. That's true. <laughs> but I do, I you know, I do think that there is this higher sense of purpose, right? And but one of the things I one of the things I liked in your book, Matt. Uh, it's not every experience needs to be transformative. <laughs> Sometimes totally. I just want to go to the grocery store and get a, you know, a gallon of milk. And yeah. I don't, and I actually wrote a blog <laughs> about this where I was going into the grocery store just to pick up something after work. And I was coming around the corner and I looked up at the, uh, you know, the aisles to check out and all the cashiers were at the end of the aisles looking at me in my space where I would, I need to push my cart. And they were all looking at me. I was like, why are you there and not where you're supposed to be? And I was told that it was like a, it was an effort now to show the customers how much they appreciate uh, us. And I said, well, please stop. <laughs> all I want to do, all I want to do is get my milk, go in line of a little small talk, no eye contact and get out. I don't need you standing there looking at me because now there's all this pressure on me to choose one of you and the one I choose, what are the other two going to think about that selection? And now you've created this whole moment 
that I have yeah. to think about and reflect on when I just wanted to have, as you talk about in the book, the seamless moment. Not everything totally. needs to be a wow experience. I just want to get through it as quickly as possible. Yeah, right. Because And that's a great example that it, attention is the coin of the realm when it comes to experiences. And it's a finite resource. And so where do you want your... Um, your customer in this case to spend their attention, right? And it's not in what you, what your experience was, right? That's not where like, I've got, you know, 10 attention points to spend on my shopping trip and you just spend them all sort of having this quandary about why people are wandering around in the aisles when you wanted to be, you know, listening to your podcast while you shopped or whatever else you wanted to focus your attention on. Exactly right. It makes I'll also think about all of this effort to transform. Like, how do we transform syllabus day, the first day of school, to be really a meaningful experience? I'm like, ah, do people want that? I mean, what is what? I mean, not that the students are customers, but what do the faculty want? What do the I mean, are we there from the first day as a kind of slow roll to kind of get things going, or do we need to make it kind of like this wow experience? And I think yeah, this is where going to this experience design. It's not just what we can do, but what we should do and what people want and how to balance all of those things together to make a decision about what we try to construct. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. Totally agree. Well, thank I you. Wonder just, I mean, I, yeah. I think that's a good place to pause and just, just bask <laughs> in my great points. Adam, go ahead. My. <laughs> Basking commenced. Um, right. You know, I, I'm actually also thinking about the, cause the, the notion of like the seamless experience, um, just the, the relationship between, you know, what we consider to be good experiences or not in, in storytelling and how important are, are like, you know, the human brain works in narratives, you know, and how important it is, is it for us to, to be able to, you know, the idea of sequencing experience as a sequence of events is also the same totally. blueprint of a story, right? Yep. Um, yep. And even the idea of what we talk about now using customer journeys or, or whoever, whoever journeys, right? Um, it's, it's really interesting to me how this language, um, you know, that experiences, it seems have, have like, has picked up on this, you know, ancient human technology of storytelling, you know, mm-hmm. um, as a way of structuring, uh, events. And I, I don't, I think it's and even like the idea again, like, you know, um, the Joseph Campbell's the hero with a thousand faces and the hero's journey as like yep. part of that too. I mean, even Ella Lupton, the, the, um, the designer has, has written about this too. And the idea that, um, you know, we can like borrow from all these narrative tools, uh, yeah. to sort of yeah, contemplate and how we design stories and experiences. Yeah. Oh, it's one of my favorite topics. Uh, I met a author, James Wallman, who's written a book called time and how to spend it. He's a, he's a Brit and, um, really, really a great book. Highly would recommend it. He came and talked to this, the students that I was with in, in London. Um, and, uh, was talking about storytelling. He spent his time with us talking about storytelling and he, he tipped me off to this great video of Kurt Vonnegut talking about, um, the structure of stories. I don't know if you've seen this before, but it's just a short little lecture where he talks about, um, it's great. You, if you just Google Kurt Vonnegut story of st- or structure of stories, you can find it online. It's, it's not that long. Um, it's pretty hilarious, but he talks about how there's, you know, all stories sort of share the same structure. And, uh, he talks about, you know, basically it's like a man in the whole story, right? There's a man, he falls in the hole and he gets out of the hole. Right. And you always want to have him like, you know, like, at the beginning, sort of the tension is a little bit lower and you end up in a better place at the end. And then he goes on to sort of break down all stories in that regard. And, and uh, you know, or whether you flip it and it's Freitag's dramatic structure or whatever it might be. Um, I think there's so much to learn from those stories in terms of how we design experiences. Where do you want people to really pay attention? You, you don't want a story that's just 
climax the whole way across, right? Like people are getting emotionally exhausted. Um, and I think there's some brands that do a really good job of thinking about storytelling and making their, you know, thinking about, and, and like your point, like we want to, we want to tell stories to make sense of the world. And so if we help mm-hmm. people have experiences that are more easily um, told, then that also connects into their retelling of their story will be the beginning of somebody else's story if they want to then follow that journey. Um, so that's, I mean, we could spend the whole, like a whole hour talking about the storytelling yeah. piece. I think it's super interesting. Podcast part two. Yeah, right. Exactly. I know yeah. we got time. I mean, I do have a bunch of kids yelling outside my door in my garage right now that I'm, um, like to tell a story about <laughs> I'm like, really? I mean, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we're going to get through this or not anymore. I really, don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I've started to go into work on Thursdays and I told my wife, I would, I would crawl through a COVID-19 unit to get there because <laughs> I just got to. I got to get some space. I mean, this is uh, going back to Neil's point about suffering. (laughs) Well, I have had some conversations with people in the neighborhood that are just, uh, you know, they're, they're really feeling the, the lack of structure, the lack of uh, purpose and meaning that uh, work provides. And these are, these are challenges that uh, we're dealing with and, I'm certain they're related somehow to the experiences we design, but, uh, you know, maybe we're learning work is, is a blessing. I, th- I think mm. I'm learning that like, I'm as like, you know, Adam's side of the road, I feel like a field, like anthropologists in the field, you know, day, you know, 217, <laughs> they've all gone feral. We've totally <laughs> lost <laughs> all control. Yeah, We've gone native. <laughs> yeah, they've gone. I mean, it's just you know, Lord of the Flies. It's it's just full on. I, I have no control over them anymore. They don't listen. They don't even speak the same my language anymore. They develop their own language. And the symbolic <laughs> system. It's just evolved into this horrible mess of just savagery. And I'm the target. Yeah. So you just you throw out the parent psychology books and you just read Lord of the Flies now for parenting tips, right? To know what's well, I'm, happening. I'm, I'm keeping those books, Matt, because they're really big. Um, the really thick books and heavy, and I might come in handy later <laughs> yeah. if I need to barricade myself in my room or for some other purpose. But yeah, I think I, th- I think in terms of the experiences we're having, um, and you know, we, this is a different podcast that we recorded before around healthcare and healthcare outcomes. It really is a moment where we don't, we're not all having the same experiences, oh, and yeah. I, I, you know, and we, we see it. In ter- I was talking with a colleague today. And she was talking about, you know, those who can intuit and those who, I forgot the word she used. There was like, those who are intuitive and those who are like, you know, sensory. Basically the point being intuitive persons can project what might happen coming forward. Um, Sensory people have to have it happen to them. And there was this guy in Florida who, you know, Florida man always, who said, you know, I thought COVID-19 was a hoax until I'm in the hospital. My wife's on a ventilator for three weeks and might die. Now I know it's real. Well, you know, did it take that much? And so, you know, the same set of circumstances, but these very different experiences coming out of them and just goes to the challenge of we can design what we want to design. What people experience is going to be in many ways out of our control. Yeah, that's probably like the most important takeaway of experience design, right? Like you don't have too much control over the end result, right? Because people are coming with all their, and I think this is a situation that is just brings that to the forefront, right? You just we're all going through the same experience in, you know, 7 billion different ways. And, uh, which opens up some really awesome 
opportunities for empathy and connection and then some really sad uh you know rifts that also can occur in society and different yeah it's yeah it's really it's really interesting and potentially tragic to pay up on how it all turns out right yeah, yeah. what are you gonna say adam i was gonna say just seven seven billion of the same experience that that's the, <laughs> that's the theme of, of this right <laughs> is that yeah. the title how of it do we find the title tell the of same, the story seven, <laughs> tell the same story seven and a half billion ways and, yeah, and there right. we are. And different outcomes and different experiences, but we want what, what what are as 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 social scientists like to do. How can we reduce those seven and a half billion experiences into some manageable set of uh, of themes, yeah. so we One can table. then talk about them. One table, like, you know, yeah, for public three thousand words. That's all you got. Yeah, <laughs> three thousand words. You know, and 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 the, the the tables don't count. So we want to throw in a lot of tables. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what did we miss? Anything that we we didn't talk about that, that y'all want to talk about in terms of your program? If one wanted to apply to the wonderful BYU, uh, by the way, do you since it's part of the Marriott School, do you get a discount, or is that not included in the perks? Unfortunately, <laughs> not. No. What's up with um, that, Neil? I don't know. We're still working on that one, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure it'll happen in the next package. Yeah. Employee experience. So the BYU Marriott School of of Business, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And the experience design and management program. And if people are interested in finding out more, where would they go? What would they do? Um, Well, I think the best bet, what is it, Neil? What's our website? Uh, Well, if you look up the Marriott School, we're uh, one of the, one of the, uh, programs listed there this is you know it's not sounding very well that neither of us know exactly where to point people but you'll hop on our landing page and we've got information there and 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 i think with the with the podcast to our email address where i think we're i think one thing that um we really pride ourselves on as a program is the, the sort of our our culture of our department and how we interact with 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 our students and sort of the community that we built so we spend a lot of time one-on-one talking to people who who are interested in the program it's a limited enrollment program people apply to get into business school and then can select our program um, one of our signature things that we do which we won't be doing is we take all of our about 100 incoming students we take them to jackson hole for a couple of days right at the beginning of the program and go rafting and hiking and stuff I'm trying to figure out so, how to do that online this year that so sounds amazing it's awesome <laughs> It will happen in we, 2021. We don't do anything that fun here in my school. I mean, you know, we're just kind of like, you know, welcome. I mean, they do some <laughs> cool stuff. It ain't like that. It's not like we go up to the White Mountains or anything like that. How far is Jackson Hole from y'all? Uh, what, four and a half hours or thereabouts? But yeah, it's part bad. of our new student orientation. So it's not all fun. I mean, it's it's definitely fun. But, but we try and incorporate uh, kind of an onboarding experience for students and Bring advisory members, board members along. Yeah, yeah. that's and legit. Complete- I mean, that, that's like if I took a bunch of students to Lake Placid, New York. It's about four and a half hours from our school, or like I said, to the Whites, or you know, Burlington's three. So you, it's actually a pretty significant investment of time and resources to create that common experience in the program. 
Yeah, it really is. So, and we we feel like it's uh, had some major payoffs in the way that students interact with each other, the way they're engaged in groups and engaged with faculty. It just has breathed uh, a, a life into the program that's, uh, of course, very experiential. And, and uh, we just feel like it's a fantastic way to kick the semester, the year off for our newly admitted students. Yeah, we had one of our one of our faculty members, Brian Hill, had been pushing this for years. I think Neil and like we should do yeah. this, we should do this, but finally got everybody on board. And uh, it is time and money, but the the dividends it's paid in terms of how it impacts the in classroom experience and the engagement of students in the program has been pretty surprising in, in positive ways. So now we got to figure out how to do that uh, online, socially distance this mm. year for this incoming cohort. Virtual reality, VR, just get yeah. them all yeah. in Minecraft like and, Oculus. <laughs> and just make, yeah. make that happen. I think that, uh, although I don't know if you want a bunch of undergraduates, um, you know, engaging with one another online with VR glasses. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That might be a little sketchy, but it does sound transformational. That's for sure. And kudos yeah. to y'all for being so forward thinking and, and thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. This has been really it's a real pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you very much. much. Future conversations with both of you. Thanks again to Matt and Neil. You can go check out the Experience Design and Management Program. We have the links in our show notes. You can always just go to byu.edu. I think that's it. Makes sense. And look for the Experience Design and Management Program in the Brigham Young University Marriott School of Business. There's a lot to say there, but they have a lot to tell you. So make sure you go check them out. And if you want to continue the conversation around the education of experience, go to our Experience by Design LinkedIn page and contribute your thoughts. We'd love to know, for instance, if you were going to create a program in experience design, what would you want to include? What does a student entering this field need to know? What are the books that should be required reading? What kind of assignments would you give them to make sure that they could do the work once they left school? Give us your feedback. We'd love to hear about it. You can also communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That's our email. Uh, We love hearing from uh, fans and friends and family alike and enjoy getting your feedback about what's working on the show and and what other kind of conversations you'd like to have. So let us know if any topics or persons you want to hear and talk more with, let us know. And in the meantime, we will see you next week. Bye. Thank you.